Good afternoon. I'm very humble and blessed to stand before you this morning to share God's word. And today is one of the blessed days in the kingdom of Christ and in the life of the church, especially 10th Presbyterian Church and me. I am Robert Lukwe from Liberia, West Africa. I was led to the Lord through the ministry of 10th Church in Liberia through Bruce and other members from 10th in 2006. And my life and higher education, especially my undergrad and ministry was supported by 10th through the missions committee, specifically the New Hope Library Committee. So this had been one of my dreams that I wished for when I was very younger. I was between the age of 18, 19, 20 when that happened. I was a half orphan. I lost my dad right after the Civil War, and a lot of kids lost also both parents to the war with street bullets and grenades. And there were a lot of offense and true tenth. A lot of young men and women who have grown, some of them are now in medical schools, some of them are teachers. Uh, a lot of offense were supported, and I was specifically with the church. Uh, Jim Millen, my friend, Eileen, uh, Dr. Allen, his wife, got to know all of them. And so, I'm one of the fruits of your financial, educational, and spiritual investment in Africa. And I'm glad to be standing before you here, very lowly, from nowhere, from the street, from the slump, to be at this point among the many young people, the many young Liberians that were supported by this great ministry, this mission. I'm humble to serve you with God's word this morning. And I want to say thanks to my supervisors, uh, Ross, um, Joe Park, and Dr. Andreka for the opportunity to share God's word. So this is me, I'm your son, and I'm your brother in the Lord, only because of Christ. And God never ceases amazing us how he takes us from different parts of the world to bring us together in fellowship for his one good. Is so good that his goodness is beyond our imagination. So this morning, as we approach the new year, with difficult challenges, with uncertainties because of the COVID, and with the stress you have gone through from the beginning of the COVID-19, very difficult year. In the year 2021, uncertain, you don't know where you're heading, you don't know if you're going to be going out tomorrow, you don't know if the government is going to shut down work. And 2021 is coming with its own challenges, along with the one you did not accomplish this year. And with the disappointment you face, probably from family, from within and out, from your job, that quench your happiness. But there is an answer in the scripture that the Lord gave to give us everlasting happiness. So as we go through God's word today, 
my goal is that we all will humble ourselves to recognize that we are sinful, that he is holy, and not be too strong to depend on ourselves and other people, our intelligence, and all that we do, but to come to his throne of grace for mercy, that he will help us both poor and rich to be able to accomplish that which he set for us through his will. So today, I will speak to us shortly from Matthew chapter 5, 1 to 3, and it reads, Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This was one of Jesus' teaching on his, uh, in his sermon on the mount. Uh, I'm going to give a little brief explanation of the sermon on the mount, and then from there in verse 3, which is the heart of the text today, we're going to elaborate on it a little bit, what it means to be poor in spirit, if it is literally physical poverty that we see that we all escape, or it's different kind of poverty. We're going to get to know that. But it's good to know that the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 6, Matthew 5, Matthew 7, and Luke 6, 20 to 23. You also find part of it in between there. It is a collection of the principles of the kingdom of God and practical life teaching for the church, for the saints, for all of us to be able to live out in a relativistic world, a world that seems to go contrary to God's will, a world that seems to live for itself, a world that seems to make law to govern itself instead of being governed by the laws of the Lord. The Sermon on the Mount is also the law particularly given to Moses in the Old Testament in Mount Sinai. And we're going to understand the giving of that law in two ways. The law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai and to God and govern the life and the activities of the children of Israel so that there would be no lawlessness. At this time, in the New Testament, the very law is explained in detail, not on Mount Sinai that we historically know to be one of the mountains of Zion, but God himself in his humility turns into human being that is corrupt and sinful and perverse in thoughts and action, came down to a low-profile mountain in Galilee to explain the very law he gave in the Old Testament to the children of Israel. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel were warned not to come around the mountain because God was so holy, he transcends everything, he doesn't dwell with sin, he's so pure to the point that when Moses came back, the children of Israel did not recognize him. And then in the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount humbles himself, went up to a low-profile mountain, teaching the disciples the principles of the kingdom. And then this time around the crowd, 
in Galilee was not bound. They were giving access to the mountain. That's why he said, seeing the crowd, he went up and he began to teach the disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is not a teaching to bring unbelievers to Christ, but it's a teaching that is meant for those who are already dwelling in the kingdom of Christ. Because in there, there where the mystery of the kingdom is. In Mark 4.11, he told the disciples, the secret of the kingdom is given you. Those who are out of the kingdom, the kingdom principle seems to be like a parable to them. A parable is a wise saying by someone, and it cannot be understood unless the person interprets the parable. So that's what the kingdom of God is like to unbelievers. Because they don't understand what is in there. But the disciples understood it. The disciples were the mean hearer, according to my research, the mean student in that class. So they knew their mission. They knew that they were students and followers of the Lord to listen to his teaching because they were the one destined to take the teachings of the kingdom to the early church and the rest of the world. But we also learned that the crowd was also there. They were giving access to God in human form, who is all-knowing, who is very gracious and humble in himself. And then during his days in Galilee, before the teaching of the sermon, he had already done a lot of miracles, healed people, healed the blind, provided food for the people. So the crowd will always follow Jesus everywhere he go. Like me, before I met Bruce's teaching, um, I accepted Christ so many times because when <laughs> when a group of people go to share when we were very you know, little before the war, they would bring juice and candies and biscuits. So we were part of those who were always going for biscuits and candy. When we hear another evangelistic program is somewhere else where there's food, we will go there. Who want to accept Christ? And then we all will go so but God has his own timing for everything. And that's the kind of position of the crowd. They came because they wanted their physical and, and, and social and economic needs probably to be met by the law. Why the disciples went specifically to learn because they had a greater tax ahead. But as we come together this afternoon to listen to the pieces of instruction he has here in his sermon that we're going to specifically learn in verse 3, you're going to go back full of the grace of the Lord, increase in knowledge and intelligence to be smart in his grace to live the life he wants you to live. Because that's part of the reason his sermon was preached. To help distinguish the life of the church from the life of the world. So the disciples learn from Jesus, but in the hearing of the crowd. Maybe some people were safe in the crowd, even though they never went to particularly listening. In God's providence, who knows what happens? Because he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing. Anything can happen when he meets people. So it was the same, maybe social, because I was broken at the time. 
right after the Civil War, when Dad is not around, roaming from the street from here and there, and saw David Allen, Bruce, and Elaine with the medical team, said, oh, people are here to help us, so let us go, and we win. Those things that you bless Liberia with, God used them to administer his grace and love to people, and that's how some of us, we are here today. So it's always important to be sometimes in the crowd. <laughs> and when you meet the Lord, you probably will be taking out of the crowd to be very special in his kingdom. Because he's a special king. He's a king whose kingship is different from the rest of the kings. Jim and I went to San, uh, sat in San Tieto. We saw the remnant of Israel headed by Mordecai, the Israelites, when King Zestes had already ordered a decree that couldn't be repealed for them to be killed. And they all gathered together in humility, depending on God only. And they had a very you know, um, strong leader. So he is the maker of the world, Jesus Christ. He owns everything. He's all-knowing. And he came down to sinners. So it means that the sinners, we are his heartbeat his people, his church, that eventually turned to be part of his congregation. He loved us, and he gave us access to come around. So, maybe some of the disciples were probably tempted to think they were so important than those of the crowd, or he met uh, Economic issue, spiritual issue, leadership problem. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were probably not working in his ways. They were not governing his people well. They were pride, spiritual pride, physical pride, where people thought they were important. People grew up high in their spirits. So there was a problem. He, Jesus, is the divine author of the text. But I'm sure the human author was also faced with a kind of situation. That's why in verse 3, he used the word pull to be able to metaphorically express how our lives are to be different from others. Before we go further, let's understand a few aspects of the sermon. It describes the way of life Jesus requires us to display in a world that contradicts God's way. It shows us what life should be for heart melted, transformed, and reformed by the gospel of truth and abundant grace. It makes clear the true nature of God's standard of righteousness that our right standing with him depends on the grace and mercy of the one greater than us, Jesus. It shows us what it means to reform our judgments and practices towards him and others. And of course, the last, it shows us how the Old Testament expectation will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So, in the scripture says, in Matthew 7, 28-29, And when he finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as they are scribes. So we see how the crowd was astonished, especially the crowd, because they have been through difficult time, 
how they see the leadership of Jesus different from their leaders because the scribes and the Pharisees were the one the people were looking up to for leadership. They were the one interpreting the law. They were the one telling them what God requires of them. And then Jesus came and contradicted everything through his lifestyle and his teaching. So he astonishes people. Uh, when we go in Liberian villages to preach the gospel, especially where the gospel hasn't been, when you're teaching God's word, the people are surprised. Because they see light. They see reformation. And they begin to see that hope. And hope raises more questions because that's the kind of happy anticipation of that which we expect in order to happen. Since the crowd were surprised because Christ spoke with authority, what then is his authority? Who he is? I know we all know that the sermon was preached by him. Yeah, yeah, Jesus preached a sermon on the mount. But do we know, or are we reminded who Jesus is by character, who he is, what he does, what he did in time past, what he's doing today, what he's doing, he's going to do tomorrow? It's good to know part of it. So, Jesus, the preacher of the sermon on the mount, is the master of all teachers at all times. He is self-sufficient and needs the help of no one. Robert Como in his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, described him as a teacher who uses his own curriculum during the days of his ministry. He had no extra lesson plan but his lifestyle and his teaching, his humility. The prophet Isaiah describes him with Full distinctive character that set him apart from all other men. He is called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful is used behind the counselor to describe how exceptional he is. He cannot be compared to no other counselor. So he is also called Everlasting Father. That means he existed yesterday, he existed today, and he will exist tomorrow. He is prince of peace. When we are burdened with disappointment, with unhappiness, it is in his court we need to come for peace and counsel. And of course, he is also described as almighty, all strong. He was never defeated. He has never been defeated today, and he will not be defeated tomorrow. And upon the increase of his government, there will be no end. Now, Isaiah, in the other half of verse 6 and verse 9, is describing how his kingdom is like. But then he, are, he was yet to be born. So, I'm explaining to us what makes him to be in authority and what are things that we know about him that surprise us, that make us to start reforming our judgment and our thoughts, to live from our old areas of belief in order to follow him, to trust him. In Galatians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, 
For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Oh my God, he's transcendent. He raises high above his creation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, the authority of Jesus Christ. What got the people to be surprised? Because they never heard any teaching like this. This teaching was not just a recitation of the law, but an explanation of the law in the Old Testament, now in the New Testament, by the very same God who gave it in humility to himself and to those he came to serve. He is the internal world of wisdom, God himself, knowledgeable of all things. He is the creator and owner of all things. We'll see that in Psalm 24, of course, um, 1 and 2. The provider, protector, and sustainer of all things. In Hebrew, to make sure of his authority more, he is on his throne. In every difficult situation, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what stress you had before, either in business or in family or your job site or you're just not happy. Do not allow your happiness to be quenched. You are serving a king who is on his throne, who controls the heart of man, who owns everything. The only way it will not work for you unless scripture lies to us, which of course we know that scripture never lies. In Matthew 28, 18, in the gospel, he himself made the claim of his authority that the Father had granted him authority both in heaven and in earth to assure the disciples that his presence was with them. And as you go in 2022, the presence of the Lord will be with you in the time of COVID, in the time of uncertainty, in the time of disappointment, in the time of unhappiness. Your happiness, my happiness, our happiness doesn't last in the things of the world. Our happiness lies in the creator, not the creator, not the creation. So those were the problem, the spiritual, social, and economic issue in Galilee that prompted this sermon. And probably some of the disciples, I didn't really directly find out doing my research, but I still think why specifically he has to call the disciple to himself. Maybe when he leaves, someone will get high in their spirits. Someone will begin to turn away because he was not around. Or someone thought they were so pious religiously that you know, they don't have anything to do with the other people. But he is all-knowing and all question belongs to him. So with this authority, he talked the beatitude. And in the beatitude, we will only focus on the first one in verse 3. And the first one all is all about him. And it is the foundation of the rest of the graces in the beatitude. If we don't meet 
the requirement of the first one, or the other one is rubbish. Because we need to humble ourselves before we make peace between someone. We have to be humble to go to him before we be comfortable when we are mourning. So humility is, quote-unquote, the core teaching here today. That was just a little bit, you know, summary. We're not going to take long on the beatitude because I just want what we're going to talk about. So the beatitude is God's grace for his church to practically reflect his character in the dark world full of storms through a humble character. In the first beatitude, he spoke of happiness, poor in spirit, and possession of the kingdom. Before moving forward, let me remind also of few things that the beatitude point us to, like the sermon, the general sermon. It is not a teaching for salvation to lead unbelievers to Christ, but to live a unique Christian character, a life of a Christian character that the sins are required to live, different from the rest of the world. It is a core of ethics and a standard of conduct for his church. It contrasts kingdom values that are everlasting with worldly values that are temporary. It contradicts the superficial faith and lifestyle of the Pharisee and unbelievers with the true faith and lifestyle he wants. So, happiness, we come, he, 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 instead of happiness being the last, he brought it first. You know, he, he knows so much what the needs of his children are, what the needs of the church is. Because everyone, happiness is the kind of expression that everyone likes to hear. Happiness, of course, exists between the CEO and the employee. Happiness, of course, is something that exists. It cannot go away. When it goes away, what comes is sadness, disappointment. So happiness is a kind of constant force that connects us or that connects parents, that connects groups. Without that, there's conflict. But how do we manage? Are we fit enough to make ourselves happy? So the reason for happiness in this text is the kingdom and what is therein. But then he brought a voice, I'm sure, to grab our attention. So what then is the means of this happiness? Because the happiness is the byproduct for something. He said, happy are those who are poor in their spirit, for they will possess the kingdom and all of the privileges you know, that are there. So when the CEO sees himself making profit, maybe at the end of his business turn, he's bound to be happy. And he's going to be happy for his employees because they work very hard. And when the employees see themselves receiving their salaries on time with extra bonuses, they are happy for their CEO. And then what happens there is that happiness, that equal practical responsibility from both sides bounds them together. That's how it is like between the church and Jesus Christ. We just read in Colossians that he is the head of the church, the leader, the owner. So he is always ready to play his part. Then he encouraging us 
to play our part. But we can't play our part in pride. We can't play our part depending on ourselves. We play our part in humility to him. Now, we will come back to happiness a little bit. Let's, let, let's go to Paul, in the poor in spirit. Um, when I met the Lord, as a Christian, when I made the decision after attending all of the conferences and drinking juice and biscuits and accepting the Lord more than 15 times, I found it difficult to understand the beatitude. I could understand what it means to moon, what it means to be peaceful, but then this very first one, I didn't like it. And this was one of the texts that I hated in the Bible, but now it's my favorite. And I just get to learn it. I listened to so many preachers preaching, and it discouraged me more when I heard people. In Africa, there are people leaving this text out of context. Mm-hmm. They say, God say, our reward is not here. Our reward is in heaven. So we are not to, you know, consume all of the creation that God made for us. So it became a kind of difficult thing for a young man like me. It even cost me when I went to Bible college to go to the academic dean so many times to change my major. Because I said, when I graduate from the Bible college, let me do general education that I'll be able to work maybe in the government or school to be able to earn something. Because in Liberia, when you decide to enter into ministry, you are considered um, stereotypically as a poor person. Your reward is there. That's the concept we grew up with. But then a few months ago, a couple months ago, 12, 13 months, uh, through a celebrated recovery program that is based on this very beatitude, I went into silence and solitude with the Lord, researching what it means to be poor in spirit. And I discovered that Jesus Christ was teaching his disciples and the crowd to bring themselves low if they must be promoted. So I began to like it. I began to find hope. I began to find peace in myself. Because why is it that I go to Bible school and I'm so troubled? What I want to do, what I love, evangelism and community engagement, I can't do it, but then I'm now coming to maybe become a classroom teacher because I want to be a stagnant salary. Sometimes God, is, that's why he said he spoke with authority. We don't know what good for ourselves more than God. God ultimately has a greater plan than we have. So, poor is a term used in the Bible almost everywhere. Physically used as a lady or a widow who needs help from someone. Literally defined as a beggar who must depend on someone before they buy bread or eat. Or is associated with a daily laborer who works for his or her master just to have something to eat. But in Luke 6, 20-23 and Matthew 5, 6, 7, particularly in the heart of today's text, it is used metaphorically to describe the lifestyle of the church. They say, blessed are you who is poor in your spirit. So quickly, let's understand three practical character of the poor in spirit. Number one, to be poor in spirit and what God requires of us is to ask for his grace of contentment and gratitude. 
for who we are. I thought this was not a message for the rich. I thought it was only meant for poor. But as poor person, in your physical poverty, appreciate God for what he's doing. Appreciate God for the breath. Appreciate God for the water you drink. Appreciate God for the shelter you have, even though you don't have to eat. He knows all about you, and he knows what your tomorrow is going to be. And many times, many poor people, some of them, not all, there are some physically poor people who are very grateful to God for their present condition. But there are also some who blame people for their misfortune. They blame it all on God. They are not happy. They are not grateful. And some rich on the other end, or middle class and first class say, I already have what I want. I don't need God. I don't need his wisdom. I think I've attended the best school. I'm wealthy enough. And I'm strong to protect myself. I have the securities. I don't need to go to church. I don't have to take up all of my time listening to an evangelist in order to give me abstract information about someone. But God will give us his grace to understand those things that are hidden in his word that will help others. And a man perfectly exemplifies spiritual poverty in the scripture, the man Job. Job was a wealthy man, as we learn, and God made him poor. But he was still thankful. He still needed God. Everyone who went with him or advice, he told them, I will wait on the law until my change comes. So be it the rich and the poor, we must always be in need of God to give us his grace of contentment. Even the rich are not satisfied with what they have. If the Spirit of God is not with you, I don't care how glamorous you're going to be in your life. I don't care what education you're going to have. You're never going to be satisfied. I think the world has produced smart, educated, wealthy engineers, doctors, economists, but the world situation keeps getting worse. How is that? It's because we have decided to lead ourselves and forget about God, Jesus Christ, who made us in his image and his intelligence. So we must be thankful. So when we are thankful and content, we are setting loose of all worldly wealth and not setting our hearts on them, but setting our heart on the grace of God to cheerfully bear the losses and disappointment that may face us in our prosperous state. Contentment with God is profitable. It enables us to stay grateful and brings peace of mind to develop self-growth and improvement. It also helps us distinguish our wants and needs and live a simple lifestyle without stress. In Philippians 4, 11 to 12, Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation to be thankful, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, 
abundance and need. So Philippians 4, in the epistle of Paul, is encouraging us, whether we are high, whether we are low, we must be thankful and appreciative to God and to others for what we have for the little they do for us. Point number two, being poor in spirit is asking for God's grace to humble ourselves lowly before him like the little children. Why the writer of Matthew using the little kids as example of humility? Little kids are dependent on their parents. Before they grow up to be men and women, before they begin to have some sense Their parents are almost like their God. They totally depend on them, they love them, and they trust them. When you have a little baby who is just crawling or sitting, I'm trying to illustrate the connection that exists between the child and the mom, especially the mom, the biological mom. Uh, when the child's biological mom leaves from here, unknown to him or her, even if there are other guardians or caregivers, it takes less than a minute for the child to determine that someone very special from among the others is not around. Now, maybe the science or the biologists will tell maybe that the, you know, the, the DNA will make the child to know, or I don't know, only that kind of connection. Uh, the, the child definitely will to know that the mother is not around. Until the mother comes back, they will be uncomfortable for some time. Um, we went to New Jersey for Thanksgiving. No, not Thanksgiving. We went for a visit. Thanksgiving, our home. Um, right after the Thanksgiving, rather. So, the little boy, they brought his food, and he said he was not eating until his mother came around. It was his mother, little sister, trying to feed. He said, no, until my mommy comes, I'm not going to eat. So, just as the kids are dependent on their parents, is the way in humility, in context of this text, that the church, the saints, you or me, and the entire Christian community should be connected to God through the secret, through understanding the secret of his kingdom, different from the rest of the world. So kids are so much in need of their parents. God has made all of the investment into the kingdom for all of us. The same way you parents, uh, you're not going to disprove me. Right now, at your ages, all that you have invested and looking for is for the benefit of your kids. When you leave, you want someone to take care of your property. You want someone to take over your business. You want them to be good men and women who will honor God respectful citizens and honor authority. So you're making sure that you invest into them, send them to good school, they have the best relationship, have the best relationship with God and people to make your name. It's the same way that God wants his church to be low, asking for his help to display that Christian lifestyle in our fallen world. And he made that. So we find the example in Matthew 18, 3 and 4 where he used the example of the little children. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It is needing the grace of God to live out of self-confidence and self-righteousness and admit to God always that we are powerless to even control our tendency of doing the wrong. Not to even think that we are better in any way than someone. The warning is there in Romans 12, 3, that we should not think too highly of ourselves to help ourselves or to be better than someone, to be educated than someone, because when we begin to think that we are better than other people in any way, by any means, pride begins to take root in our hearts. We begin to tell ourselves that we don't need God. And when pride enters our heart, we begin to treat other people differently. We are to be humble, gentle, and act differently towards us. We are to deny ourselves for the good of other people. In Liberia, when I was a little boy, a very poor boy running a, motor, a, a motorcycle taxi for someone just to be able to help his poor mother mistakenly had an accident and this guy had his computer in the back. I wasn't really, I was, I was a street seller at the time. I had not come to the law. But I saw a very sad thing that spoiled my day on that day. So I think trying to save his own life and along with the passenger, you know, they fell so badly and the guy had his laptop in the bag and the screen cracked. The guy who owns the laptop didn't treat the motorcycle rider well after he did all he could to help them out or to even save his own life. He demanded the boy to pay for the laptop. I have not come across this, or I have not, you know, I have, you know, heard about goodness, but I felt in my spirit what's going to happen to him. The motorbike is damaged. He needed to give account to the owner, and this guy laughed at his paw. He's bleeding, and the guy is saying, "This is my working, you know, uh, this is my office." Laughter. He had to be face. Say, well, I you know I left, and I, the situation was beyond my control, so I left. And then I saw. Another Christmas time, in another year, in another area, a man took his family from the United States. They went to Africa for vacation. And another poor taxi driver scraped his new car. And then the driver began to rise up in his spirit. And when this man who owns the car got up, he saw the script on his car. He said, if God had not given him the car, the man would have scraped it. He said, wow. So there are actually people who live in, who are willing to deny themselves for the good of other people. He said, my son, go and run your traffic so you can make your report soon. Travel, get in the car, let's go. And look at the two scenarios. The current deputy chief of staff of our armed forces in Liberia, car got scraped the same way. And then she was at work, and the husband was driving. The gas pour, the bomber all burst up, and it was taken to the police station. We were there on different issue, but we all heard Geraldine George' new brand car is damaged by a taxi driver. So 
the police officers, the immigration officers, the police station, everyone's attention got drawn to that scenario. And when the lady came, she was called. The police commander at the depot said, you have to come. Your car is damaged. The husband is yelling and almost asking that they put the taxi driver in jail. When the general came, the first thing she did, she asked the guy who offended her to go run traffic. And she told the police officers to cancel the case she was going to face her car. So practical Christian lives are displayed, not just in the church. People are led by the Holy Spirit to live their lives for people. So humble, and she came so humble, simple. So is this, it was my first time seeing her. Is this the deputy chief of staff of the Armed Forces of Liberia? Very young girl in her early 30s. Show the character of Jesus Christ to us. And we all were amazed. And we begin to think that we need to act differently towards other people, even when they offend us, even when things are not going down well. So we must be humble and bring ourselves low. Lastly, at this point, to be poor in spirit is asking for God's grace to always be spiritually hungry. Just as the first beatitude is the foundation for the rest of it, it's the same way on the three points, contentment, humility, and lowliness in ourselves, this is also the foundation. If we are not hungry for God's word, we will not be able to be content. If we are not hungry for God's word, we will not bring ourselves low for the benefit of other people. It is to take ourselves as sinners who do not have the spiritual resources necessary to meet God's demand, that we are empty and hungry for his grace to be refilled with Christ's word, which is the bread of life. Is that in John 6, 33, 35? For the prayer of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, his disciples, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. God has given us the invitation to go to him. I know we always meet for small group, which is very important because small group and worship service and different different Christian gatherings, evangelistic crusade, because scripture mandates that in Hebrew 10, 25, 26, that we should not forsake the assembly. But you as fathers, leaders of your home, leaders of your corporation, your businesses, you are the head of everything, and you need that special encounter with God privately, you alone, withdrawing from those that you are leading, withdrawing from your family. Joshua succeeded with the children of Israel during his days as a military person. When the children of Israel on the battle line, he is in the camp speaking to God about the next right action, how to take the army, how to save them, how to accomplish God's will on the battlefront. Jesus often did that in his ministry. In Luke and Mark, he often withdrew from the crowd. And that's how he grew high in wisdom to be able to deal with difficult situations especially when he's been trapped by the Pharisee. And that's how his three years and half ministry grew that today 
those of us or people who have spent several years in ministry have not conquered his record and no one because of his transcendence and you know, his authoritative power. So it's good to always withdraw to be in the presence of God. He is a wonderful counselor. He is a prince of peace. So where do we always hear from him? Is that just a church meeting or when we are driving? Most of the time, and even I who the teacher or the preacher that God is using today, I'm always in hurry. Even with the missions that I do, the ministry that I run, I'm always in hurry. Sometimes I'm you know, leading with my own understanding and say, hey, this is what God wants us to do. But sometimes even as ministry people, as teachers of the law, how to run God's church, we must have that personal encounter in Bible reading, in prayer, in silence, in meditation for the next right action. In Mark 1.35, Jesus said, I mean, the scripture says, he withdrew from the crowd. And you are packed with a lot of things on your to-do list to accomplish. Family, job, education, ministry, and you name the rest of it. Taking up our time. He says to the lady, you are anxious about many things, but there is only one thing necessary. But Mary has chosen that good portion that will never be taken away from her. In Luke 10:41, he was speaking to Martha and the sister Mary. When Mary, when Martha got angry with, you know, with the sister, he said Mary had taken the good part. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my world will never pass away. In Matthew 24:35, we're learning that. So God's word is important. Everything is rubbish unless we come to realize the infinite value of learning God's word and to be led with his will and spirit. So then we have accomplished and learned three important things, three important characters of the poor in spirit, contentment and thankfulness, being lowered in ourselves and bringing down lowly to God before his throne of grace and other people and always craving to learn his word, to be fed, to be refilled after we are empty through prayer and meditation and silence with no distraction. Take the hard copy of your Bible because when, your, when the technology goes or when your phone goes or you wouldn't be able to read about Take the hard copy of the Bible with you when you are encountering God or put it on silence so there are no distractions. He's too big. He's in authority for him to be distracted especially youth, because he is all-knowing. Nothing shakes him from his seat. Nothing distracts him. But for our sake, let's respect him. Don't be like me, a ministry leader who, oh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm going out now. Uh, Genesis 4, okay, when I come back, we'll, no, let us live on hurry life. Because the unbelievers who live in, who, who, who is being driven by the things of the world are always in hurry. Don't be too busy to spend 30 minutes of your Time with the Lord for direction, for sense. Be poor in your spirit. The education will not help. Even the family that you adore so much, then God will not help. The things of the world pretend to help us, but they often lead us on the highway. But God doesn't. 
Christ is associated with us. So what are those things that are packed in there that make us happy? Because he promised us that when we are pouring our spirit, the kingdom of God is ours. So let's, you know, in a summary way, get some of the things that are in the kingdom. Because this is the king of the kingdom speaking. With authority that I'm the one who owns everything. And we learn in uh, Colossians, Psalm, and Hebrew, that in Hebrew he's on his throne. In the book of Psalm 1 and 2, he owns all that we are looking for. And then he is there saying, all spiritual forces and kingdom and leaders, I own them. I don't want to know how to humble people. And he humbles so many people. So the basic schedule, the stress, the good time should not take our attention away from God. As my fathers and mothers, this is a reminder. For us young people, this is a timeless, a timeless teaching from the scripture that never expires. It's helpful all of the time to bring ourselves low to the Lord. To live our lives for people and improve on it more. He graciously gave us the invitation to come in his rest for everlasting counsel and peace. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, the invitation is given, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavily laden, I will give you rest. The, the, the burden, the things that burden you, I'm going to take it. And I will give you peace. Be reminded that he is the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. In Isaiah, no one has that character enough. He showed us the secret of his kingdom. You are his little ones with all the angels protecting you. And your interest shall be his interest in his own timing. His word says in Exodus 14, 13, 14, Do not be afraid. You only need to be still. And the Lord will fight for you. Honor his mighty hands. You live more in peace and comfort. You are easy within yourselves in his abundant grace. Nothing comes to surprise you because his presence is with you. While those feeling high above themselves are uneasy and vulnerable to anything, you are never in hurry to protect, provide, and lead yourself, but you patiently waiting on the law like Job. You are adopted into his family as his children fit to be in his church, the congregation of the poor, who lays up good security for themselves in store for the time ahead. Therefore, as we enter into the new year, with the uncertainties and difficulties of life, plans and goals, do not be strong to help yourself with our God, but to always be in need of his grace to be content and thankful and things in prosperity or when things get tough, humble and make yourselves lowly for the good of others, just as Jesus did. You live spiritually poor in good and bad times. Empty yourselves and allow God to fill you in with his word. You trust and recognize his sovereignty, that he is powerful and in control of all things, all situations, be a spiritual, be a physical, be a kingdom or ruler that he is holy and we are sinful and weak. He is all and we are nothing. And nothing, less than nothing, 
and humble ourselves before his throne of grace and ask for help. Let's pray. Lord, we humble ourselves with confidence and draw near to your throne of grace that we are weak and don't know how, how to help ourselves out. That with all of the burdens that we have, all of the things we have on our to-do list, we may come to receive your mercy and find grace that you will help us in our time of need. May God's word take effect and root in your life as you go on to lead your family, your job, and whatever thing you have, knowing and knowingly sitting ahead of you. May God bless you and see you in a few weeks. Thank you.